Since food touches everything, I thought it would be enlightening to speak to Pepper Roussel, food lawyer, to learn about some of the issues that are part of her advocacy. Join me as we explore these issues with Pepper. Today on Tip of the Tongue, this is Liz Williams. Welcome to Tip of the Tongue, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. Welcome, Pepper. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Liz. It's really a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you. It's always such a good conversation. So, agreed, agreed. I always learn something when I talk to you. I really am fascinated by your career trajectory and the mm. fact that your food interest and your food professional interest is part of your second career and that you were in information technology for a good while and very educated within that field, not just with practical knowledge, but um, but with study, and then you chose to go back to school, and you went to law school. Because <laughs> who does that? Who gets and, a master's and then is just like, you know what I need is a JD? <laughs> exactly. I asked myself that question. What kind of a masochist is she? And, um, and so, <laughs> so tell me about that, and then how you wound up having food and drink be part of the themes of the issues that you're interested in, the, the legal issues, whether they're social justice or other issues, they are, sure. they, they touch food. Uh, well, short version, long story is my husband and I were at the, coming to the end of our relationship, but we were agreeing that we're just going to take a break, see what happens. And that was the same year that I got admitted to law school. So law school was my first love. It's just that undergrad seemed to have been a challenge for me. And I didn't think that I was going to get in. But fast forward to a milestone birthday, I figured either I go now or I don't ever go. And when he went to go and do his internship, I went into law school with me and our two sons. And I thought I was going to go into immigration law. I tell the story often till I figured out that immigration was law school across international waters. And that was simply not for me. I looked around as the commercial business tells you to find the thing that you love, the thing that you would do for free. And all of those things revolved around food, whether it was my um, choice in recreational reading cookbooks or my obsession with dinner parties. Uh, all of those things led me to uh, even... Uh, being room mom for the kids, it was always around you bring snacks and things like that. All of those things are really about food. And so I knew it was food, but I didn't know what that meant. But I did an internship with an NGO that was trying to understand what the impacts of a proposed regulation were going to have on their ability to keep heirloom seeds and to not just store them, but also to provide them for to local farmers as they were moving into a different type of growing. 
And by definition, anything that you have inside of a, a catalog is, well, right and legal, and things that are outside of the catalog then became illegal, and they weren't sure exactly how they were going to maneuver. And so it was at the end of that summer, I partnered writing a paper on what those regulations, the impact of regulation was going to have. I wrote another paper on the intellectual property of thieves and how the U.S. handles not only that, but also international trade. And that was it. And I knew that food was going to be my thing, but I wasn't exactly sure how it was going to work out. What I thought I was going to end up doing was policy, but I found out, although I am a mite stubborn, it took me three years to figure it out, the policy doesn't pay very well, unless, of course, you are uh, writing very large grants or you are working in academia. Policy is certainly the way to establish long-term change. The work that I have done around bills and laws and all sorts of policy movement and legislation have been things that have been just really uh, extending a thought or working to establish a next layer of a goal. And the the food itself that, or rather the topics that I've worked with around food are generally food access, food security, and food sovereignty, meaning the culture of food, because that's how we know who we are. And uh, so all of those things really do lead us to a place even if it's unintentional or uh, not really in the forefront of mind, of uh, food being at the center of not only conversations, it, well, anyways, in New Orleans, but also the, the the culture and the relationship to family and to who you consider your people, all of those things happen at a table. That That's really true. I mean, food and identity are just almost indistinguishable. Uh, Agreed. Yeah. So... Then you graduated from law school, and I remember that I met you through Balin Linekin. And Yes, yes. I actually, I tell that story pretty often uh, because people want to know, you know how, how did that, how did, you know, how did you meet Liz? And I'm just like, well, oh, let me tell you. I went <laughs> to this conference, and Balin Linekin was talking about food, and as, as he is wont to do, uh, Balin uh, used to teach at William and Mary, if I'm not mistaken. He's now in Seattle, I think. I, I know he's uh, in, in the Northwest somewhere. Yeah, so somewhere up there, he's he's over there, and um, he is also um, on the board of Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund. That I know for sure because I've actually gotten to talk with some of the folks at, through the Legal Defense Fund. And so anyway, so I, I wanted to talk with him and I wanted to interview him and to find out, you know, well, how do you make money doing this? As a, as a food lawyer, what, what does this look like? And he's all, well, you know, you know, these are the things that I do. And you really should meet a friend of mine. She, uh, is, she, she is the Southern Food Beverage Museum. And I'm just like, really? I don't know this woman. Who is this? And he starts talking about how, oh, yeah, she's amazing. She used to be a lawyer. And I'm just like, no way. And so we continue talking about food and law and food policies. And lo and behold, you walk in the door. And I was like, <laughs> look at that. It is the way New Orleans works. Anyways, I, I went and talked to you. I guess it was the, the following Tuesday. I remember it was a Tuesday. And it was supposed to have been like a 20-minute conversation that turned into about two hours, partly because I'm chatty and had a million questions about, like, how did you do this? And why were you, why did you leave law? And you're just learning a little bit more about the museum and, and what it is that 
that you do and uh, with all the writing and things like that. So for me, it was less about making a conscious decision to move into food is it was making a conscious decision to move into something that I love to do. And I knew that, uh, that game law is my first love. Law was going to be the vehicle that I used. I just didn't know where I was headed. And so in this moment, what I'm looking at doing is not just working in policy, which is something that is more of a passion project and was not uh, actually making me any money. And it's not the bread really, and butter for sure. Oh, no, no, not at all. And so actually working in, in a practice that is farm, excuse me, uh, food focused. So food law and food lawyers is, is really my identity at this point. But understanding that there are many layers and components that contribute to not only the production of food, but also access to food and the worthiness of food, which sounds like a weird thing, but it is a thing. Well, and I mean, the fact that food touches everything just means that you can kind of have food be your focus and do almost anything. I, I think that's Agreed. really a really important thing. I've become kind of interested in food waste recently and, oh, uh, sure. and how that is so connected to food justice. Absolutely. Uh, People don't make that connection all the time. I taught a class over last summer to some master's students at Tulane in food disparities. And when most people think of food waste, they think about, you know, the, the, the things that go bad on your counter or in your refrigerator or the things that you throw away. But there are so many other parts to the food, the food chain where there is this crazy amount of waste that folks don't recognize or they don't know that exists. And so understanding that Growing more, growing bigger, it, going bigger is not going to feed us all. It, there are fundamental changes in the way that we operate that need to be changed because we have enough food. We're just not using it properly. And then for the food that we do actually put our hands on and we do uh, cook with or we do convert into some sort of value added product, we aren't using all of it. We are wasting the, so compounding the waste. Uh, but you were always one who was thinking about food waste. In fact, it's because of you that I even know that you can pickle watermelon rinds. So <laughs> I don't know that you've just gotten into food waste. Well, I've just gotten into it in a kind of a, a more institutional way, let me put it that way, where I'm looking at the waste in restaurants, the waste in grocery stores, even just the waste at the farm where things that are not beautiful or um, something like that get uh, second shift and often are discarded. You know, the farmers can only eat so much. And if they don't have (laughs) some way to turn it into some secondary product like jelly or jam or something like that, it it really, really has nowhere to go. Agreed. Agreed. And the thing is that I think we, we both revere and demonize farmers for the work that they do and the idea that they would try to sell a, a crooked carrot almost seems heresy, like heresy, but the the truth of the matter is it's the farmers do not control what the carrot looks like when it comes out of the ground. They have absolutely no 
control over, you know, whether it's lumpy or, or, or what have you. It's just you know, luck of the draw. And, and it, it all tastes the same. It tastes the same. That's the part that I think is so ridiculous <laughs> that we care so much about whether it's straight. <laughs> Well, we've become very superficial in many ways, right? So uh, just think of the number of surgeries, optional cosmetic surgeries that have happened to fix things that aren't broken over the, the past you know, few years. And by that, by few, I mean like 10. Um, <laughs> additionally, the amount of, I mean, the, uh, uh, makeup, makeup is a multi-billion dollar business. So we're very, very, very interested in what things look like and how photographable they are and oh, it, it's definitely very, true yeah. yeah without without much concern as to what it tastes like because I've actually had carrots that were beautiful and tasted like nothing uh, part of that was because they were out of season but uh, the, you know the rest of it is really understanding that there are more things to be concerned about if you're eating than with just what the thing looks like well, additionally there are some businesses that have actually set up based on the idea of ugly food. No, I, I think that's that's true. And there also it it's worrisome that um people will genetically alter or at least somehow modify it may not be an actual genetic alteration with some kind of genetic engineering, but through regular changing of things that just regular genetics Sometimes mm-hmm. people are more interested in something that is shelf stable or pretty or whatever, and they just oh, forget sure. and they forget about flavor. So that I mean, I think tomatoes are the best example of that. Uh, that the the tomato that is shippable becomes much more important than a, a tomato that tastes good, and somehow people still buy them and say, "Oh well, it's." Just doesn't taste good, but it's still a tomato. It's like, tomato. <laughs> and so, what are yeah. you? So, tell me what you're <laughs> what you're working on right now. Now that you are a lawyer and you've kind of gotten your feet on the ground, tell me tell me what you're up to. So, still doing policy work. It's more in a volunteer position than it is direct than that policy work. Most recently has been with FPAC. I mean, the biggest win that we had was last year, and that was around the small box uh, retail stores that I can come back to in a second if you want. And what that, uh, the small box stores are these uh, uh, dollar stores that also sell food. And uh, having the city council to spend the uh, allowance of, uh, of small box stores within a mile of each other, because ultimately they do more harm than good when they're in close proximity, especially the way that they set up, which is in marginalized or uh, low income areas. And that is inside and outside of New Orleans as an urban area, but also in rural areas to be sure. And uh, the proliferation of these small box stores that sell food that is packaged and that is you know highly preserved and self-stable also comes at a higher cost for those folks who if they had an option to go to say a regular grocery store they could get the same thing for less money because it's not individually wrapped additionally um working still on trying to be sure trying to get to a place where we are changing the laws and narrative around lead pipes and the water that comes through them, whether it be for direct consumption or for irrigation of urban crops, 
and uh, what that looks like for the city of New Orleans and the state, understanding that uh, there that almost every parish has its own water source, and so there's not a blanket answer across the board. But what we do have are levels of lead and lead contamination in urban areas that are higher and create other more devastating impacts long term for kids who suffer from this particular preventable disease, for lack of a better way to put it, and making sure that they are protected and so that they don't end up on the school to prison pipeline. Under Green Pepper Solutions, which is the umbrella for Green Pepper Legal and Green Pepper Consulting, both in an effort to get paid for those things that I've been giving away for free for the past few years. Uh Green Pepper Legal uh, focuses on farm and food, but it's more than that, because as you know, food is uh, the foundation for, for almost everything. We do business transactions, so that could be, you know, contracts or uh, establishing the, the business, working with bankruptcy, so we consider it from soup to nuts. We also work with individuals around their intellectual property for their food business, so consider that a copyright for a cookbook, a uh, trademark for your brand in general, but also looking to work on wills and secessions, which brings me to an area where we're talking about protecting the land that has been within families for generations so that it does have clear title and it can pass to the next person that's supposed to have it. And then the end of that is looking at the land use and, and water quality and the environmental justice, which is really does sort of bring us back into a little bit of the consulting, but if there were, say, an administrative issue that your land has been contaminated by your neighbor or there's mold, for instance, there we go, that's an easier thing to wrap your mind around. There's mold maybe in your apartment or your house and your landlord won't fix it, um, working on things like that. So I, I know that you are holding a fellowship right now. Why don't you tell us about that? I am. I am. I'm actually working with the Bar Association through the Flood, or through the Bar Association and uh, Southeast Louisiana Legal Services as a flood proof fellow, which was to help those folks who suffered in the losses in the 2016 Baton Rouge floods to not only clear up title and ownership, but also to get the descendants, because in every natural disaster, there are folks who pass on. And not always do they have wills, which we are, I, I am personally encouraging people to write, but they may not open the session to clearly identify and to give clear uh, title, clear title to whatever was left behind. And so that is actually a, an amazing opportunity for me to learn how it is that we can protect not only urban, but peri-urban and more specifically rural land that may be tied up in as airship property where people don't really understand that even if you even if you don't own a whole lot that the way that the laws of louisiana work and i'm sure most states work is that there is a prescribed way that the that the land will will transition so from uh parent to child, maybe to a grandchild, but even could go to siblings or excuse me, to aunts or uncles and even back up to grandparents, depending upon, you know, how the land was, was acquired. And so it always goes back to food for me, farms, because that's where food comes from in the States. And the idea that 
if we do have a stronghold, if we do have folks who can hold on to their land, then they can always feed themselves and provide for themselves just by growing a little bit in the backyard. Well, so you're talking about people who maybe live on land and they're the third generation who's lived there, but they've never opened a succession and reestablished ownership or transferred ownership from one person to another and often then don't receive mail about paying their taxes or things like that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and it doesn't even have to be third generation, right? It could be just that you've got one parent who passes on another parent who's just been doing things. The kids may scatter uh, in order to go for better job opportunities elsewhere. Maybe the, the parent who has been living in the house gets sick and nobody knows who's paying the taxes once they you know, go to the upper room and or you know, who's taking care of it, who's taking care of the house and everybody presumes somebody else is doing it. Now, I'm not saying it's right, wrong or indifferent. What I am saying is that we see this playing out repeatedly. And there's got to be a stop to this cycle because what ends up happening is that what the parents may have sacrificed in order to purchase then becomes lost in this quagmire of legal wrangling. And that is not only a disservice to the family itself, but it's also a disservice to the memory of, you know, your dearly departed ones. And not so much as a commercial, but to say that, you know, it's, Weddings and funerals do bring out the worst in people. And yeah, there are folks who leave with their feelings hurt, absolutely every world reading, but it's less about the individual as it is the, the whole. I mean, there, um, I know that she interviewed Dr. Connors not too long ago. He's from the Low Country, and there had been acres upon acres upon acres that the Gala owned and all it took was for one family member to decide they didn't want it anymore and soon as the, soon as the sessions get open there were these really posh golf courses and private uh, clubs and such that were going in and buying up all the land and it's that sort of thing yeah. that you don't necessarily recognize until until you get there, right? And I'm not saying that everybody should be sitting around morbidly thinking about their own death, but at some point, you do need to be sure that the land itself, right? And so it's not it's not about anything in this moment as I as I frame this. That it is about making sure that the land that the, your descendants have clear title to the land, so that they do have somewhere to go in case of an economic downturn, they've got some way to provide for themselves and their children in case, you know, they lose their jobs, they can still grow something in the backyard. People give away seeds for free all the time. And Sprout was just giving away seedlings. If we had more folks who who had opportunity to to, uh, coax food out of their own land and to self-support, then we would not be seeing the same or looking down the barrel of the same mass addictions that are coming with folks who really will not have any other way to to feed themselves, to home, to house themselves because they've you've been out of work and you know, what do you do? So anyhow, uh, yeah, the flood proof program was intended to be around this environmental issue, which was which made it terribly 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 interesting for me since we have cyclical disasters in New Orleans with you know pumps going out and street flooding and all that. But for the sort of in the larger scheme of things, understanding that this is a way for folks to provide for their generations. 
So also you, I know, have been working with the Chittimacha Indian tribe. Yeah. And so why don't you tell us a little about that and their seeds? Yeah, I'm actually, uh, fingers crossed, I will be barred to to practice in the Chittimacha court. I am really, really excited about that as one of the things to put on my resume because it's a conversation starter. So the Chittimacha are one of the uh, federally recognized tribes that sit in the state of Louisiana. They do have a court of their own, which is beautiful, by the way. And the way that they practice law is really fascinating because it's restorative justice, which is a whole nother conversation. But I just want to make sure that people understand that that is crazy cool. It's as opposed to and in stark contrast to the very punitive system that we use here in the rest of the states. They are considered, uh, just as all uh, federally recognized tribes are, a dependent sovereign nation in the state of Louisiana, which is really interesting because they're one of the few that actually has had their language translated into a a language that or preserved and translated by Rosetta Stone for teaching on their uh, reservation. Has it been turned into a written language? I that I don't know that I don't know, but I remember the story about how excited they were that the language was being preserved and that it was being taught through Rosetta Stone. And I remember that because I was learning uh, language through Rosetta Stone at the time, and I thought that was terribly interesting. The Chittimacha, being one of the southern Louisiana tribes, are very much like well the rest of us who are in South Louisiana, and the things that they eat are very much like the things that we eat as well. So I just was running a quick search to make sure that I wasn't misrepresenting anything, but their diet uh, consists of, or they were subsidized by the words, they are, they're very, very hard today. Commodities? No, they've subsisted is the word I'm looking uh, for, but okay. I'm tripping over my tongue on... Uh, corn, potatoes, and wild game, right? Okay. And so corn being the, a thing that most indigenous tribes uh, relied upon, it's not, it's not the same corn that we eat today. Right. And so the corn that, that they were eating and, and many of the, the older tribes and the older generations were eating was far more healthy, et cetera. But one of the things that I found terribly fascinating about the Chittimacha um, is that they do have a court, which is restorative justice as opposed to punitive justice, which is incredibly fascinating and far more supportive for the community than what we use in the rest of the, the, the U.S. The, the thing about them, though, uh, so getting to the food situation, so their uh, primary sort of farming culture was not necess- was not growing so much it was caretaking for the for the um, the, the weeds that were in the bayous and in the, the swamps because they used those in order to make their baskets and they weren't necessarily out there planting although they did replant in some areas and it was really a very elaborate process of caretaking for the reeds in order to make these baskets for which they are known and they may have been doing yeah. that same caretaking with certain plants and things that were that were edible, and so yeah. I, I think that their original sense of farming was very natural, as opposed to the kind oh, of farming sure. that Europeans brought here. 
Absolutely. So working with the land and making sure that you're not uh, taking too much from it because it's about understanding the uh, relationships, right? So it gives to us and we give back to it. We right. have to protect it in order to support us. And so the way that they interacted with the reeds is where I'm going with this. And understanding that there were some of the reeds and some of the, the plants that grew in these areas that did give off, that did give seeds and did give fruit that they could eat. And so very, very complex relationships that they had preserved in some ways. But two things. One is that I am planning on being admitted to, or at least applying to be admitted to practice in the Chittimacha court, which I think is terribly fun to say. And the second thing is that the part of the reason that I have been interested in the Chittimacha is because the, the movement around the intellectual property of the seed as well as the food and understanding that as a dependent sovereign nation, that they will have additional protections uh, such as sovereign immunity in order to protect the things that we may hold here. So thinking about things like corn, for instance. Now, it's not the same corn that they would have used, but one of the foodstuffs that they made as a traditional recipe is corn mock shoe. And that's one of my favorite things to cook in summertime. But that is really just an illustration that it's the same type of foodstuff that can be found in the rest of the region. And the idea of being able to utilize the additional protections around culture that the tribe would have will protect it for them specifically, and they will hold the legal protections and the intellectual property. But it will, in my mind, make it easier to protect for the rest of us. So even if there is some sort of, a, I mean, for, I suppose, best or worst case scenario where only they are growing the things that go in corn mochu, which will not happen, but still for the sake of this conversation, buying it just from them would be fine with me, just so long as we continue to have the food stuff and the food stores that's available. They're agrarian in many ways, but you know, then again we all were. They were also hunters. They were big on, on game and you know, lived in the the same swamps as, you know, the rest of us who were down in southern Louisiana. And so so the Chittimacha are uh, near and dear in my heart in very many ways, and I am hoping that at some point I can actually help them to help the rest of us, not so much about taking anything from them, but allowing them to uh, move forward with some sort of protection around the food itself, and that will make it so that we have additional protections for the folks who are down here. And I'm thinking that especially as we no longer have the same sort of urgency around the uh, land loss for the coast and the uh, narrative of losing a football field a day is not nearly as moving uh, a narrative as a polar bear who's walking, a starving polar bear who's walking on water as opposed to ice, that we've got to do something in order to ensure that the things that we eat are the things that we can continue to eat. Yes, it's really uh, amazing how puppies with roomy eyes are somehow more compelling than starving children. Um, it, indeed, it isn't that. And then, when I mean, you got to define child. I mean, is a child under eighteen? Is a child under two? Is a child just right. you know, right. worthy before it's born? So many questions. Yes, yes. And food always um, gives us a lot of things to talk about because it actually touches everything. And so in your practice, you're probably going to wind up practicing in almost every field 
but each of those fields will still be connected to food in some way. Oh, without a doubt. You know, food is, uh, um, somebody told me, I mean, I've been eating my whole life, but I'd never thought about something that uh, somebody once said to me is that people, people got to eat in good times and in bad. And I think that's something that we don't give enough credit that whether it be an economic downturn, uh, whether it is that you have access to fresh produce in your neighborhood, people have to eat something. And they have to figure it out because they will die otherwise. And so it's a big Agreed. motivator. It, I mean, it really is a big motivator and it just speaks to people's resiliency as well as their ingenuity um, because people Agreed. figure out all kinds of ways to, to survive. And um, I think the, the fact that we eat some of the more bizarre things that we might eat is because <laughs> sometimes that might have been the only thing available. And it's like, well, we might yeah. as well give it a shot. Well, isn't, you know? Absolutely. Isn't that how the crawfish became a thing to eat? It was abject poverty of the, uh, the, the, the immigrants, the Cajuns who were coming down from Nova, Nova Scotia. And I, I went to high school in Southwest Louisiana and, I remember having a conversation with a gentleman who's, and I can't remember where it was, why I was talking to this guy, but he was saying that, oh, he was assistant principal. I remember now. Anyway, talking about how when he was a child that only the poorest of the poor would eat crawfish. And over time it has evolved into a delicacy, but I'm thinking that's pretty much the same narrative as oysters, as lobster, as many things that we now put the really high price tags on, well, they started off as very, they, they were the food of the poor, but that was because they were abundant. And I mean, lobster was something that people didn't want to eat because there were lobsters all over the coast. And people said, well, uh, you know, I want to eat something fancy and, and rare. And, but I, I do believe that the native people around Baton Rouge were most interested in, in crawfish and that one of their totems was a crawfish. So I don't think that, that I, I think that it's really this hierarchical society that really cares so much about whether it's a poverty food or, or a delicacy. You know what? I would agree with that. I think that, um, that you're right in many ways that the things that would have been considered a poverty food for you know, Asians may have been something that folks were just eating, but I think that that's also a narrative that we continue in many ways for it. Like it's today, the the things that that uh, get notoriety and the things that, like a po' boy, for instance, mm-hmm. right? So po' boys used to be affordable. Now it's you know not right. uh, the things that what it, the intention was that it that you know we could survive off of a po' boy and hence the name and right. now you know I was actually looking at a po' boy I won't say at the, at the restaurant but $18 for a po' boy is not uh, yeah, what that's uh, supposed to be that's right yeah so <laughs> it's just not what it's supposed to be it's, it's definitely made a transition for sure agreed agreed but I think that the most interesting which is slightly off topic but please bear with me the most interesting and delectable and notable foods are the foods that we would consider humble food that have been, you know, tended to for hours and just every delectable, moist and juicy moment 
that can come out of this food is caringly, caring and lovingly coaxed out of it. And I'm thinking like oxtails and you know, the bones that are used to create stocks and broths and um, all cups of meat that are so you know, fibrous and horrid on their own, but you know, give it three hours in a pot. Oh, it has more flavor <laughs> than more flavor than those quickly cooked, very tender. Without a doubt, yes. yeah. So to me, you know, the 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 peasant food, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, is uh, is often the best food. Uh, you're not going to get an argument from me. I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue. We come to you from studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Please come by when you are in New Orleans, and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Liz Williams.